Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley and the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. Even if you're not an athlete, sports psychology can positively change your life. Years ago, when I came upon a textbook on sports psychology, my first thought was, hey, this could be used in every area of life. The fact is, living has an abundance of overlapping principles with sports and achieving your dreams inside or outside sports. As you might imagine, when I was introduced to Dr. Jonathan Fader, a clinical psychologist who specializes in sports psychology, I was over the moon excited to interview him. Most people call him Fader, and he works with entire teams and players in Major League Baseball, the National Football League, the National Basketball Association, as well as the heroes in the fire department of New York. He even works with rock stars and actors and people of all walks of life, including heavy hitters in business. And the principles of sports psychology inform his work with all of them. He is also the author of a book I absolutely adored called Life as Sport that I highly recommend. And he co-authored a book on motivational interviewing with former guest Dr. Stephen Rolnick, also amazing and highly recommended called Coaching Athletes to be their best. So listen in as Fader and I converse and he unpacks how sports psychology can improve your life. Dr. Jonathan Fader, who has asked me to call him Fader, welcome to Super Psyched. Oh, it's amazing to be on here, Adam. I'm really delighted to talk to you. It's a great show and we're getting some really good stuff here. We really are. And early on in my career, I took notice of sports psychology, read a bit of a text and thought to myself, my God, the applications of sports psychology are omnipresent and it has informed a lot of what I do. And lo and behold, you come about writing a kick-ass book called Life as Sport, in which you basically unpack sports psychology and all of its applications. By the way, folks, fantastic book. Listen to it on Audible, download it on your Kindle. You will love it. It's really accessible and it will actually change your life. You will see how you can apply these principles in your own life. But Short of that at the moment, since maybe some of the listeners haven't yet bought the book, what is sports psychology and how might it have surprising applications in everyone's life? Well, first of all, just thanks for your kind words about the book. And what I think about as I hear you talking about and asking about sports psychology is that I can tell you that I wrote that book during my experience of being a sports psychologist, first for the New York Mets for nine seasons, and then with the New York Giants, the football team for two seasons. And what a sports psychologist does, Adam, is really works with athletes, in that case, professional athletes, but certainly college and high school athletes and amateur athletes to do a couple of things. First and foremost, it's to help them to optimize their ability to bring out all of their talents. And so what you notice in professional sports is that people come in to professional sports, all talented, but after you know a few years in a sport, you realize that some people are able to ascend to the highest level of sports and some people are not. And when you think about the great separator there, most people agree that the great separator there is the ability to adjust. And the way we're adjusting is mentally. And so a sports psychologist 
is there and also mental skills coaches are there to help athletes learn skills and techniques to help them to be able to show up with their skills regardless of the mental or physical barriers or challenges. I'm totally blown away when you think about the athletes who show up. If you make the NBA, for example, you are in the top fraction of a percent of all basketball players in the world. The difference between you at, say, the top of the NBA is not actually all that different from a guy who's amazing playing street ball. It's just those tiny fractions of a percent that seem to make all the difference. And that seems to be also what you help these stars do. They are already great, but you stretch them. You're not a shrink. You're a stretch. Yeah. That terminology is what we use. And the first person to talk about in that way was a great sports psychologist by the name of Ken Revisa, who most people think was partially responsible for the Cubs breaking their curse. (laughs) As I say to people, this is the same kind of training you would do for your muscles and your cardiovascular strength. This is strength building, but just for mine, this is curls for your brain and squats for your soul. It's saying, you know, that I have all these parts that make me a great performer. And some of them are not my physicality. Some of them are my attention, my ability to attend to what's important. Uh, In the Olympics, some sports psychologists say, you know, it's about paying attention to the right thing at the right time, every time. And that's a skill that you can hone. It could be working on your confidence, your self-belief, which is one of the things that we know predicts athletic performance. It could be working on your level of motivation and consistency. And so there's so many ways that are on the table, unrealized value for people. And as you said, my whole experience with this, Adam, was really throughout my experiences through baseball and football and actually working with firefighters and other verticals, I realized that I was having experiences in which I was challenged and where I was feeling like I was not at the top of my game. And it became clear to me in time that all these skills and techniques that I teach these high performers were just as relevant as you were alluding to in my life. They were helpful for me in my work as a psychologist, in my work as a business owner, in my life as a husband and as a father and as a friend. And so, you know, Life is Sport, this book is really a philosophy that emerged from these personal experiences of realizing, hey, these techniques and this way of thinking is applicable off the field as well. 100%. And it even applies to me as the practitioner. I actually view my role as a therapist as a sport. I'm not just sitting there as a tabula rasa. I'm working. I'm pick up a shovel. I'm sweating alongside as the patient is digging. And I drink a lot of water. I mean, as evidenced by what you're going to see right here, I've got this 32 ounce, like comically sized mug, as well as this other guy. It's a dehydrating sport, psychotherapy, if I believe if it's done with that kind of intensity. And I'm thinking about like LeBron and Steph who have humbled themselves to receive tons of coaching. And I believe that speaks to part of their edge. And I think it speaks to anyone's edge, whether they're in a relationship and want to improve that relationship or whether they're in sales, trying to increase their numbers. You describe it very well in your own game of poker and how you've been able to deal with some of your demons there through the same practices. You say that the practices that you espouse with your clients are the same ones you integrate into your own life with, which I think is phenomenal. I'm wondering how might anyone, LeBron and Steph aside, us muggles use sports psychology in the context of perhaps building our intimate relationships, increasing our sales, doing better at work, doing better as a parent? I think that 
the first step there is to think about when we say what it means to approach any of these situations as a sport philosophically, like what does that actually mean? And in my mind, it means a couple of things. It means that you bring on the same kind of competitive spirit that you would do a sport. And it means that you really become a student of the game. And so to me, where people begin to go astray is where they cease to enjoy what they're doing. And so thinking about our work, and I just was talking to someone for the Wall Street Journal, and we were talking about how do you enjoy your job more? And you know, what we're talking about it is that you have to find a way to create a sense of playfulness and enjoyment in what you're doing. I'll give you a practical example of this. I was talking to a CEO the other day who was complaining to me about his team being on their phones all the time. It's like, you know, they're on their phones all day. And, you know, he's asking me, how do I curb this? Do I punish people? Do I reward them? What do I do in terms of what's the way to be able to stop this behavior? And so I thought about it for a little and I looked at him and I said, it's really simple, you know, all you have to do to resolve this to get them off their phones. And he's looking at me, there's a drum roll. And I said, is you just have to be more interesting. And he looked at me for a second, thinking I was crazy. And then he <laughs> laughed. And really the reality is that if you are bored at work, it's about creating a sense of like, how can I be more playful? So we created a game in which his only role in these meetings was to say and do interesting things that would get more engagement from his team. And so I think that sense of playfulness and enjoyment is critical. And there's a million ways I talk about in life and sport that you can do that. But the second thing is to think about how can I be a student of the game? And the first step in that is to really do an analysis of the thing that you're working on, your relationship, your job, and to really think, what are the levers that I control that impact the bottom line? A lot of time we spend so much time thinking about things we don't control. So for example, you mentioned being a therapist. What we really don't control, this drives us crazy as therapists, is We have no control over what the people we help actually decide to do. And so when it comes back to it, it's like, well, one of the things that control us as therapists, to your point, and I know how good you are at it, it's about bringing the right kind of energy to each session. That's one thing I control. I control what kind of energy I choose, what kind of energy I come to each session. I choose, you and I choose what kind of energy we're going to bring to this discussion. Like we could say, hey, we have long days. I'm going to give it 80% or like right now I'm saying, you know what? I'm really, this is important to me. And I'm going to bring a level of energy. I'm making that choice. And so these are things that we control. And so what most people can really improve their life as sport attitude is to say, what do I control in this arena? What do I control in my relationship? Is that I control that I listen better, that I read a book that helps me to understand communication techniques, that I go to a couple's therapist? What do I control at work? Is it my level of spending time preparing for meetings? Is it doing a better job at mentalizing or understanding what other people are thinking? And to really work that and to identify what are the skills, the mental skills that will help them to do that better. And I love the idea of putting levity into the context of a serious relationship thing. Just a moment of levity, a moment of play can shift the entire energy. And one of the things that I've heard you say as I was geeking out to you and preparing for this interview is that you and I also share a love for Irvin Yalom, who said that therapy is constantly reinvented every time someone new comes through the door. So if you have Steph and LeBron, proverbially, you tailor the therapy to each of them and reinvent it, personalize it so that it really fits just as you would for any person seeing you based on their individual needs. 
I love this idea of interpersonal neurobiology, which is fun to say and makes us immediately sound super smart. But the idea that we are kind of having a mind meld with the person. And one of the things that I really get from you as a sports psychologist is that you are a different sports psychologist for everyone you serve, whether they are in sports or FEFDNY or John Bon Jovi. It's always you, but it's a different version attuning to the person you're talking to. No question. I think that being a sports psychologist and working with high performers in music and theater, firefighters, people ask me all the time, what are these people like? My reaction is always like, well, what are your family like? So they have the same diversity of opinions and thoughts. And I think actually one of the most humbling things about this work is realizing that no matter how much money someone has or how much success someone has, fundamentally we're humans with the same set of problems and conundrums about what humans have. I mean, in my view, Adam, and I'm sure you have overlapping thoughts and experiences, all people really want to do is to belong and feel meaning in their lives and feel like they're good at what they do. And athletes and you know, high performers in other areas are no different. Maybe the stakes are higher. What we say in Sports Strata, which is our performance consulting practice, where we work with tons of athletes and performers, we always have a way to say our philosophy is human first, athlete second. And Love so that. to be able to say like, who is this human that I'm talking to? What are their strengths? What are their areas they need to improve or want to improve? And what's going on for them? You and I have a shared interest in motivational interviewing. A lot of times we make the mistake, I believe, as therapists, but just as people to not really correctly understand what someone's struggle is. We make an assumption about what people's struggles are. And then later on, we learn, oh my God, this is actually not what they're really struggling. It's something different. And we kind of have to walk it back all the way down the trail and then go up a different path that we should have gone up for the beginning. And we just have to ask, you talk about a soccer player whose mom had fallen and he was unreachable and there was a miscommunication and we have to ask. And there was a pitcher who was throwing great for seven innings. And then his coach started scowling at him and he only found out after the game that his coach was having <laughs> gastrointestinal issues. And that to was what he to was put it, put it mildly <laughs> to put a PG 13 for the podcast. But we just don't know unless we ask. And that's such an important piece. So let's go into motivational interviewing for a second. I like you fell in love with this model. I do think it's a good Jedi art form. It's very positive. Daryl Davis, an African-American professional musician who helped get 200 men out of the KKK and a former guest on this podcast. And Steve Rolnick, who helped co-create it and who was your co-author of a phenomenal book about how motivational interviewing can work in sports psychology. Can you tell me a little bit about what motivational interviewing is from your perspective as a certified provider of it, as well as how someone in sport might benefit from receiving it. I did a training on motivational interviewing recently for a group, and I was talking about how I got into it. And it was really interesting. I was 19 years old or 20. So yes, this is decades ago. And I was volunteering in this clinic for addictions. And they were doing this thing called motivational interviewing. And they gave me a manual, they gave me a little training and I was sent into the room. And this group that I was working with was a wait list group. So these are all people who are trying to get into treatment, but there was no space for them. And just because of the structure of New York City and the healthcare system, these folks were from 
a wide swath of socioeconomic and ethnic and cultural backgrounds, which was really fascinating. And what I found was that this new technique I was learning, Adam, really helped me to meet people where they're at. And the reason it did was because motivational interviewing is this universal communication strategy and style that helps people to really do two things. It helps them to listen really well, and it helps them to bring out from the speaker their own intrinsic internal motivations for change. It's a system of communication that helps people change because it helps them resolve their own ambivalence about change. And we listen to no one more than we listen to ourselves. And I believe that's the basic premise of it. It can come from the outside and we could say, hey, Fader, you should get up and jog every morning. And then instead you have what we call the writing reflex, which says basically F you, Adam, I'm not doing that. But when we go through your inventory of your agenda and what you really deeply long for in your life and compare it to where you are now, you would feel the dissonance around that and perhaps inform yourself about what you might do to make a small step toward that change. Is that a fairly good summation of? I wouldn't say that's fairly good. I would say that's an exceptional and excellent (laughs) summation of it. And I think there's so many things to go back to your highlights of it. I mean, for me, what's really powerful about motivational interviewing is it switches the conversation around. And typically conversations go And you can think of your own life and the different times that you've had friends that have been in problematic relationships or your kid is not doing what you'd like them to do. The list goes on and on. You've been supervising someone who you're trying to get to do something. The more that we voice a reason that someone should do something, the more that their mind gravitates to the reasons not to do it. And the writing reflex is also really a practitioner or the person who's trying to convince or tell or advise issue because we have this strong negative bias. You know, our minds look for what's wrong. And so... If we're talking to someone about a change, we're going to look to tell them all the reasons why they should change. And so what MI does, motivational interviewing helps us to be able to switch that conversation around. So we're empathizing with the reason that the person doesn't want to change and freeing them up to be able to speak about reasons for change. One of the biggest research findings about behavior change is that the more a person talks about change, desire to change, need to change, the change talk predicts that they will. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Just when they hear their own musings, when they hear their own voice, I often quote this moment from the John Adams HBO series where his wife is having dinner with him and she's recognizing that he basically bludgeons people with the truth and no one wants to listen to him. And she says, John, men wish to believe they've come to their own conclusions. And I think that's genius. It's like totally true. I know Pascal said something like that and it's just true. And I can't even imagine how awesome it must be for the ambivalent athletes who need to make change. And when they go up to bat, it's like a rock in their shoe. They know they need to change this, that, or the other thing in their life. It could be something directly related to sports. It could be something outside their sports life that you're helping them with. And you help them address that ambivalence and you basically get that rock out of their shoe. So when they show up at bat with their winning song, they're ready for the pitch. Exactly. In many conversations I've had with athletes and business leaders, et cetera, the reality is that they know way more than me about Mm. their particular expertise. So it makes no sense to me that I would sit there spending a ton of time giving advice. Uh, Yeah, I definitely give advice, but 
the most powerful thing is to pull from their vast expertise. And this is true of everybody. I mean, this is not just true with athletes. This is true for an accountant that I might meet or, you know, the best solutions usually come from the people with intimate knowledge of their problem. Could not agree more. So I want to geek out to one of, based on the amount (laughs) you wrote about it in your book, I want to geek out to failure with you, which is, as we know, sucky, no one enjoys it, but it is a cost. And if we want to do anything, there will be failure, maybe lots of it, maybe lots of painful failure. I love some of your thoughts on failure, some of your quotes on failure, but I was wondering for the listener who's listening, kind of as winter is coming, what are your thoughts on failure, man? So as winter is coming, I mean, I think that my main thought about failure is so much of what happens in life is actually not the thing itself, but the way we interpret the thing that's happening. And my favorite quote about this has been attributed to N.S. Nin and Kant and some rabbi in the Middle Ages. But anyway, so the quote is, things are not as they are. Things are as we are. And the lens in which we understand our experience yields what it actually it ends up being. And so when I think about failure, I think the first issue is what do we mean when we say failure? So if someone comes to me and they say, you know, Fader, you know, I failed. It depends how well they know them. But typically what I say to them is, no, you didn't, I don't think. Right? I think you've had unwanted results. And what I mean by that is failure is a judgment about a particular situation. And failure also in some way suggests that there are no other options for how you might remediate the situation. And it's been very few times in my life that I've experienced that. One of the best examples of this is there was a baseball player I worked with at the Mets who he had a terrible year of consequences of unwanted results and was talking about all the failures. And, you know, when we looked back and we analyzed, and I mean, with kind of really complicated statistical analysis, we found out that actually he had a lot of bad variance and bad luck. A lot of times he was just hitting the balls to the wrong parts of the field, totally random. But if you peeled back and you did analysis where you looked at, but what if those things didn't happen? You would have had an epic year. Oh my God. And so it's sort of an example of how we all are. I mean, really what happens to most of us, including me, is that we have a goal and we run into some interference. We label it as a failure and then we give up. And so if you just label things just in your mind as saying, okay, that's not the result I wanted to get. Let me keep going. Let me see what I need to do to adjust and adapt. I think that's a much more viable and productive way of interacting with our goals and how they go, both positive and negatively. One of the things that you're kind of saying as we look at failure is that it's so important to analyze and get maybe multiple weigh-ins from people who might see different things about what might be contributing to that failure that we might have missed and that might be edifying. Of course, not everybody's going to offer good stuff. Some people offer bad stuff, but you're describing an introspective process, an analytical process, a reflective process that I would imagine many tools, whether it's having a bunch of people take a look at what's going on, as well as perhaps we ourselves journaling about what's going on and engaging in sport therapy, individual psychotherapy, all of these ways of, as Michael Mead describes it, getting off our horse and consulting the dwarf about where we're going. 
Yeah. When we get off our horse, the most important person, as you pointed out, to consult is ourselves. One of the ways I think about our work, Adam, as a therapist or a coach is my goal is to have the work that I do with someone live on in their head. If they're depending on me to be able to tell them, coach them, get them back, it really is not that useful or viable. So I think from my view, it's to be able to for develop ways that you can have this internal dialogue with yourself that, that you can check that out and check out your hypothesis or your understanding of what's happening to you. And another thing you alluded to, which I think is really key and I do with a lot of people is what I encourage people to do and reinforce and build people is an attitude of curiosity towards their results. If you have a certain result and your instant reaction is to judge and demean yourself, then you're stuck. But if you say, I'm really working on being curious about how to get better. And when you have a result that's unwanted, you take a step back and you zoom out and you say, all right, I'm training myself to think, what does this tell me? What is the meaning of this result? And how can it help me? I had a talk that I think I wrote about in Life is Sport with Laird Hamilton, the big wave surfer. And he was saying that this younger surfer came up to him and she was really talented. And she said to him, you know, can you help me, Laird? Because my surfing, I just suck. And he said, well, I think we need to start with that statement, right? Because, (laughs) and so, you know, when we say I failed, really, I believe we're bringing the wrong attitude towards what we're talking about. That's damning and confining. If we say, okay, these are unwanted results. I'm going to get curious. This is really interesting information about what should I do because of these results? What should I do? How can I adapt and get better? I'll just say one other thing about that. To me, where you see this so powerfully is in the NFL. In the NFL, I've been stunned at when people receive unwanted results, how quickly they metabolize those. They get through them and they move on. And part of that is the culture of the football, of American football. But part of it also is just the nature of having just 17, 18 games to be able to play those 17 games and only have those chances, right? Like this is it. There's no room for that, right? There's absolutely zero room for it. And I think that in my experience, you can create that kind of culture in your mind, in your life by saying, there's no room for this. Like, sorry, it's not that it won't happen. It's going to happen over and over again. But to train your brain to say, failure is not how I think about things. It's just about what does this tell me about where's the course correction here? And that this might happen as John Kabat-Zinn says about mindfulness, your mind might go back to that a thousand times and you must bring it back a thousand times to this way of thinking, training yourself or detraining yourself away from this negative bias that we have towards interpreting our lives in this way. And I love what you just said about John Kabat-Zinn because each time we are able to hit the control alt delete button and bring ourselves back after that toxic thought, we may come to the erroneous conclusion, oh my gosh, I'm a monkey mind. I am full of self-sabotaging beliefs. But if we're each time confronting those sabotaging beliefs with a system override, it's like we're doing push-ups, And it's a slow process. It's a marathon, not a sprint. But it is meditation while we are fully conscious. And I love that idea that you're bringing out. And what Laird said was so on point to the Anais quote about the woman who said she, you know, was a terrible surfer, that it was less about how they are. It's more about how we are on the inside. I was having a great conversation yesterday with Frank Anderson, who said we experience the world outside as we experience the world inside. 
There may be a slight difference in the way he said it, but it might be a different. No, but it's very similar. I mean, I think it's saying it's the mental version of you are what you eat. And the sense of that we have a Mm. lot more control being the watcher of our thoughts. Uh, You can't stop them. Now we're in the merging of John Kevinson and Laird Hamilton because, you know, John Kevinson said you can't stop the waves. You can learn to surf, right? So there's a way in which we can assume control of our response. I was working with a marathoner, but actually Dina Canster, who is a really profound marathon runner. We were talking about just thoughts that people have while they're running marathons. And what I was saying to her is it's not that you can stop your thoughts from coming, but you can certainly affect, choose, curate your thoughts about your thoughts. That's always up to you. As we're sitting here, you have your enormous cup of water and Behind me, I have these two arrows that are bookmarks. And it reminds me of this Buddhist thought, the double arrow idea, which is this Buddhist philosophy of like in life, you know, we get shot by arrows. So you might have a terrible day trading on the market or the kids that you're teaching might stress you out or your kids might stress you out by doing something. And the second arrow, though, is the real issue, which is the arrow that you shoot yourself and that there that we shoot ourselves is the interpretation that we have of these events. And that's always within our control. No one really controls this random generator, this brain that we have that says all kinds of crazy stuff, good, bad, and otherwise. But we certainly have the control over the authorship, the editing, the footnotes, and the commentary on those thoughts. Couldn't agree more. And I love your conceptualization of the brain as a random generator. It's doing that all day with all kinds of crap and sometimes really good stuff that we don't capture and we should. But I'm going to put a pause on that one and I'm going to go to something that is near and dear to me that you are a big fan of. And that is levity and music. You apparently, at least at the time of the writing of your book, had a conference table that had on the other side a ping pong table. And we know for sure that one of the ways to get creative and to increase our intelligence is to increase our levity, to play. It's also very bonding. I'd love to talk about play. I'd love to talk about music. I'm thinking about music. Before I see you, I will tell you my lead off song for like getting pumped up is definitely Macklemore. Can't hold us. And I'm guessing that play and music really are important for you and the people you serve. No question. You know, I love that song, that Macklemore song. It's such a juicy kind of up energy song. And, you know, both the chorus and the lyrics and the vibe is just so much like makes you feel like you could run through a wall. Totally. Yeah. We are substrates of energy. We are a field of energy. And I mean that really scientifically, like we are subject to the environment we're in. And that one of the concepts I talk about with people in business a lot is you know, in these conversations, are you the thermostat or are you the thermometer, right? Are you the person who's controlling the energy in the room? And I think that one of the things I've experienced with athletes is the best athletes are ones who know how their thermostat works. They have a sense of that. And if you look around a MLB or an NFL locker room, no two players are doing the same thing. You'll have a guy over here listening to Metallica with his beats on and you'll have someone else dancing to, you know, Little Boozy from Louisiana. And then you'll have someone else praying and someone else is talking to their mom. And I'd say the only difference is there are people that are doing it randomly and there are people who have, have 
almost at, at the level, almost everybody has it really planful, but you know, we don't really think about that a lot. And I love what you're doing with the Macklemore because, you know, whenever I give a talk, I have a regime that I do that gets me in the right frame of mind. There's a lot of writing, as you know, some of your listeners probably know too, about the idea of flow and a flow state where your skill set matches the challenge in the environment, where things slow down and you just feel like everything is clicking and working almost in a magical way. No one knows really how to produce that. However, I would say that in my work with performers and athletes, one of the things you notice is that there are certain situations and characteristics and routines that make it more likely that a flow state will emerge. And I think your point about play, music, and thinking about how to get yourself in the right place mentally is one of the ways to really do that. Phenomenal. And definitely brothers from another mother with regard to that. Bader, before I get to my final question, one of my favorite takeaways that I think everybody can really benefit from is not being outcome-oriented, but being process-oriented. That is not saying, I will bat. 60 home runs this year, but instead I will focus on my hitting. <laughs> I will focus on the ball. I will focus on the behaviors that will increase the likelihood of that outcome. But that's where my focus goes. I was wondering if you could elaborate on being super process focused for the average person in their life so that they can get the results that they want. Well, I have to say that I've really been excited about the fact that this idea, I think, in some ways catching on, you know, you see more Adam on t-shirts and game locker rooms, control the controllables ah, is yes. something that, that you see. The only thing I would say is like, I think people get that as a concept, but they don't know how to do it. So I'll just break down in very clear way, as clear as I can, how I think that works and how it works for me, which is going back to baseball, take it from the other side, which is, which is pitchers. Pitchers would come to me and say, I got to get more strikeouts. And I would look at these titans of the MLB and I would say, <laughs> I would look at them and I would say, you can't. And they would say, excuse me? You know, they would look at me. This, this <laughs> Who the hell are you, man? Like, look at you, you can't throw a ball across this clubhouse, much less something <laughs> hundred miles an hour. And I would say, well, what I mean is, before I was physically injured, I would say, what I mean is that you're throwing a ball hundred miles an hour. Who is responsible? Who strikes out? And they were like, well, hitter. I was like, exactly. So what is your actual job? We would get to the point that the job is actually to throw well. So we would go back that up and say, well, what does it mean to throw well? What contributes to that? Ken Revisa, who I talked about earlier, really mm -hmm. inspiring sports psychologist, he would say, pitchers are not pitchers. They're professional mitt hitters. Or to quote one of the best baseball players of all time, Nolan Ryan said, a pitcher has two jobs, choosing his pitch and executing it. Everything else after that is just out of their control. So really what you can do to control the controllables is to either by yourself or the coach or with a friend, think about your goal. So let's say it's to increase the PL of your company. Let's say it's to have a more loving relationship, whatever it is. And then to ask yourself, what are the main variables, the main things that impact that variable? Like what are the things, the processes, the events, the behaviors that will yield a result in that area to list them and then think about what supports you need to be able to achieve that. And yeah, I think it does help to do that with a coach or a therapist, 100%. but it's something you can do on your own too. And that process, I'll say one other thing about it because you know, I love talking about this topic. One of the acronyms in sports psychology is this idea of APE are the things you control. Your APE is your preparation, 
and your effort. That's what you control. You control how you think about things, like what we've been talking about a lot today, your way of appraising things and appraising your own stress and thinking about others. You control your preparation. How much do you prepare? And that makes sense for whether it's a relationship or not. Do you just walk home? You want to have a more loving relationship, but what are you doing when you get home? Are you affirming your partner? Do you have a little routine that you do before you walk in the door to kind of de-stress? Do you, are you working on your listening? And then effort. Is there one step more that you can do? Are you bringing home a little card for him or her or them? What are you doing, right? To be able to make 1% more effort. Same thing here, right? Like I was just like wondering in my head, do I say, I know we're kind of wrapping up. Do I say the eighth thing? I'm like, I'm going to say it. I'm going to give 1% more to this conversation. That idea of saying, what's my ape here really is clarifying for a lot of people of determining like, am I focusing on something that's outside of my control or result, my batting average, for example, like you were talking about, or my ERA or run average, or am I focusing on choosing the best pitch and executing it the best I can? Yeah, simply put, am I working hard or am I working smart? And am I conceptualizing myself as a pitcher as a mitt hitter? I love the idea of going ape fader. That is brilliant. I think that is one of the best nuggets imaginable, which leads to my final question. If you had the magical abilities to confer upon all humanity, one insight or skill that would vastly improve their lives and perhaps even the lives of those around them, what would that skill or insight be? And how do you imagine it would affect the individual as well as perhaps others in their life? I would confer the skill of being able to be an improved reflective listener. I would enable all humans to be able to get better at listening to understand rather than listening to reply. Almost all of us, when we're listening to people, are thinking, oh, this is what I'm going to say next, or (laughs) this is how I will rebut what the person said or have a counterpoint to it. And I have a firm belief that if all humans got better at listening for the purpose of really deeply understanding what the other person in front of them is saying, to listen with empathy and understanding to listen in kindness and to really think about what that other person means and what they feel, I think we would have more peace and joy in this planet and probably beyond. I could not agree more. Just beyond grateful to you, man. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe. 